You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Regular waking consciousness has a predictable and consistent signature in the brain. Widespread activity in the prefrontal cortex, brain waves in the high-frequency beta range, and the steady drip-drip of stress chemicals like norepinephrine and cortisol. During the states we're describing, this signature shifts markedly. Instead of widespread activity in the prefrontal cortex, we see specific parts of this region either light up and become hyperactive or power down and become hypoactive. At the same time, brain waves slow from agitated beta to daydreamy alpha and deeper theta. Neurochemically, stress chemicals like norepinephrine and cortisol are replaced by performance-enhancing, pleasure-producing compounds such as dopamine, endorphins, anandamide, serotonin, and oxytocin. So no matter how varied these states appear on the surface, their underlying neurobiological mechanisms, that is, the knobs and levers being tweaked in the brain, are the same. And this understanding allows us to tune altered states with newfound precision. Consider one of the simplest and oldest ecstatic techniques, meditation. Historically, if you wanted to use meditation to consistently produce a state where the self vanished, decades of practice were required. Why? Because your target was nothing more than a peculiar sensation, and hitting it was like throwing darts blindfolded. But researchers now know that the center of that target actually correlates to changes in brain function, like brainwaves in the low-alpha-high-theta range, and this unlocks all kinds of new training options. Stephen Cutler is the author of the William L. Crawford IAFA Fantasy Award-winning novel The Quickest Angle for Flight. His nonfiction includes West of Jesus, A Small Furry Prayer, Tomorrowland, Bold, and The Rise of Superman. His new book, co-written with Jamie Wheel, is Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists are Revolutionizing the Way We Live and Work. You make that sound like a good thing, Steve, is it? I, it I, whether good, good or ill, it's happening. Right? It can go either way at this point. I do. I, I think it, it bodes well, but, you know, there's, there's a dark side to the stuff we're talking about in this book. Uh, this book takes begins uh, much sooner than we might uh, expect back in ancient Greece. Tell us about the search for Kaikleon. Kaikleon. So Stealing Fire is a book about a $4 trillion underground revolution and people hacking consciousness to massively improve performance. And the point starting there, right, is that hey, this has gone on for a really long time. And we start here with the ancient Greeks and we start talking about the rites of Eleusis, which are, you know, at the center of, of Stealing Fire are altered states of consciousness, a specific kind of type of altered state. And the rites of Eleusis was a very profound state-changing state ritual performed in ancient Greece, had a huge impact on culture, Plato, Pythagoras drew foundational notions from these rites and the center of the rites of Eleusis, and they used all kinds of what uh, Lied, the historian later called techniques of ecstasy, meaning techniques that changed your consciousness, right? And this, the, everything was in this ritual. Long distance running produced a runner's high. They had all kinds of dancing and ceremony and drinking and et cetera, et cetera. 
and they also had kaikion, which was some kind of psychedelic. Historians have argued back and forth about what it is. The, the modern interpretation, which may be right, may be wrong, is that it was kaikion was a potion brewed from kind of a rye ergot fungus that produced LSA, which is a precursor chemical to LSD. So it produced an LSD-like kind of psychedelic reaction uh, in participants. And the whole thing was supposed to be a, a huge ritual initiation between death and rebirth. And so we open the story with that, but the, the story that's more important is the story of Alcibiades, who was this sort of Roman or Greek scoundrel, very, very politically weighty, great orator, always playing both sides against each other, only allegiance was to himself. And he, on punishment of death, stole Kaikion from the temple and used it to throw a party to his own ends, right? And um, this chain of events and all, you know, ended up leading to the death of Socrates, all kinds of stuff along those lines. But our point is that as far back as you go in history, there are people who are willing to risk their lives for an altered state of consciousness. And that pattern we see repeated over again and over again and over again. And what you write here in the 21st century at the helm of the Flow Genome Project is that uh, we find these rebel upstarts willing to bet it all, but the progress that we make in learning how to use this remarkable tool kind of goes back and forth. You say that the problem is conflicting motivations. The people who are good at experiencing flow are not the people who are good at studying things. So in, in this particular case, what we are talking about is, is what we studied at the Flow Genome Project, which are the peak experiences known mm -hmm. as flow, right? These are optimal states of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And, you know, for... More specifically, it's, it's those moments of kind of rapt attention, total absorption. You get so focused on what it is you're doing that everything else just seems to disappear. Sense of self vanishes, time passes strangely, and all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. And because all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof, people have been really interested in flow for a very long time. Right? The modern science of flow dates back to the 1870s, which is the very first time you know, a contemporary scientist said, hey, wait a minute, altered states of consciousness seem to have really big impacts on performance. And the trouble was when we sort of got involved in this research, the Flow Genome Project, which is you know the organization I, I run, um, co-run with Jamie, is Flow Science was the scientists were really really balkan balkanized. The people, the athletes, the artists, the people who had a long history of using the state, producing the state to get their job done, they could care less about studying it. Right, that didn't matter to them. And the scientists who were stuck in the lab. Most of them didn't really know what they were talking about. They had never, they had experienced micro flow states and maybe a low grade runner high, but a full blown flow state, you know, which William James, going back to the early research, thought was a mystical experience, right? Before we realized there wasn't anything mystical about it and there was neurobiology under it. It's such a strange experience. And the scientists really hadn't had this experience, so they didn't really know what they were talking about. We built the Flow Genome Project to kind of pull the scientists, the artists, the athletes, the academics, everybody could together. We wanted, you know, a cross-disciplinary open source research project. This is really fascinating. And I think it's, you know, at the core of where this book is coming from. I, you know, I think what, what's at the core, I, th I think you're right. And, you know, the reason we could do this 
is because neuroscience, neurobiology has advanced so much in the past few decades, right? It's riding on the back of Moore's law. Our computers are getting faster. Thus, imaging technology is getting faster. Thus, we can look under the hood of this so-called mystical experience for the very first time, figure out where is it coming from? What's producing it? And and more specifically, if it has such a big impact on, on performance, A, we could, could define it and measure and start measuring that impact. So we found out that that's very real. But now we can figure out how to get more of it, how to deliver these experiences with much more precision, possibly on demand, possibly at scale. Those are the real changes today. In order to do this, we first have to understand what we mean. And in order to understand it, you take us directly to the experience. And I think in terms of the writing in this book, I really like the flow of story because this is a series of stories you tell about people who are all caught up in aspects of this um, stealing stealing fire of trying to experience flow, but you create, in a sense, a flow of stories of flow. That's a, that's a neat well, trick, and you do a good job at it. Thank you. I mean, you know, we know, for example, flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. Mm-hmm. One of them is pattern recognition, when you link ideas together, right? And when that happens, we get a little squirt of the neurochemical dopamine. It's a feel-good drug. It's also a focusing chemical. And it also actually creates conditions for more pattern recognition. So dopamine tunes signal-to-noise ratios. You notice more patterns. So the book is structured, all my books really, since I started understanding how this works, are structured to kind of try to take the reader through a voyage of discovery, right? I don't I kind of assume I'm not that smart. And if I can learn something, anybody can learn something. And the only question is, how did I learn it? What did I learn first? What did I learn second? What did I learn third? And if I present that material with the right kind of ahas, you make the connections, you get the dopamine, it drives focus, and it drives you into flow. So what you're experiencing <laughs> is intentional. Now, you know, does it work for every? It worked for you. I don't know if it works for everybody. Um, but yeah, there's some intentionality there. There's some there's some neuroscience. I mean, storytelling is engaging for a reason, and there's neuroscience underneath that engagement. And we we know how it works, and and you can kind of work backwards <laughs> to manipulate the reader. Sorry, he's using. I, I want you to have more fun reading my books. He's using the technology he discovered writing the book to write the book. Uh, be that as it may, you take us right to the heart of combat. I would not expect us to begin this in with the military. The military is not is not what we think of. It's almost the opposite of brainy guys sitting around talking about the brains. It is. Um, it it is. It uh, a lot of this. Um, a lot of the when we were. First research in the book, there's like four years. It came out of Rise of Superman, obviously. It was my big book on flow. And this is a bigger book about something, you know, that's going on that includes flow, but it also includes a whole bunch of other states of consciousness. But it started really with a meeting with the Navy SEALs, which took place uh, not long after Rise came out. And, you know, they, they reached out to the Flow Genome Project and they brought us in. And, and I remember the discussion where we were like, these guys are Navy SEALs. What the hell do we have to teach them, right? Like, really? Um <laughs> And uh, but we went in and we were shocked to discover that, and, and we were dealing specifically with DevGroup, which is SEAL Team Six, um, which is sort of the pinnacle of the SEAL teams, so the best of the best of the best, I guess. And uh, they were talking to us and about, you know, it's, this is a very expensive group of warfighters. Like the cost of training a Navy SEAL to SEAL Team Six is about three point five million dollars per SEAL, and something like. 
two-thirds of that cost is actually about training them into group flow, screening for their ability to shift their state. Now, flow is an individual performing at their peak. Group flow is a team performing at their peak, right? It's a whole group of people coming together. So if you saw the Super Bowl this year and saw the fourth quarter comeback that was spectacular, that's group flow. A great brainstorming session is group flow and certainly seals on a mission to tap into group flow. And what you get in this state, we've talked about heightened performance. What you specifically get is better creative problem solving, heightened high-speed decision-making, and better cooperation. There's a bunch of neurochemicals that show up in these states, and they amplify information processing, but they're also social bonding chemicals. So they tighten links between other people, and when you get a lot of this going through a team together, and they've been trained for it and screened for it and everything else, you get them functioning like a seamless hive mind unit, which is what the SEALs need to do to succeed. And so we open with, like, the anti-Navy SEAL story, right? It's a story, it's ultimately the story of of a capture of one of our kind of significant enemies, but almost nothing happens, right? It's a bloodless capture. Nobody's killed, nobody's wounded. They raid the compound, they separate out the women and chill. Like, it's the most unsexy Hollywood thing in the world, and yet it's exactly why they spend $3.5 million screening for soldiers, a perfectly executed job, and it only worked. Right, We captured public enemy number one or whatever he was, but it only worked because they could get into this state of group flow and function seamlessly as a team. And that was like the shocking fact was when uh, Rich Davis, who was the commander of SEAL Team 6, you know, turned to us and was like, yeah, you know, this thing you study, flow, it's the secret to being a SEAL. And that was so, you know, it was shocking to us too. Um, these states are more important to us than we understand. They're more common than we expect. And that with this book, as you begin to look around our society and identify them, we see them happening It's in lots of unexpected places. So talk about uh, the burning, burning Google. <laughs> so we go from the Navy SEAL story, which is all about group flow, into this kind of sort of famous story about Google, which is, you know, Google was in, in the early days of the company, right after they had gotten sort of big enough to be um, to be serious, the board decided that maybe the company was getting a little too big for Sergey and Larry's 20-something britches at that point, and they needed some adult supervision, right? They were going to bring in a CEO, and Sergey and Larry embarked on what came kind of one of the most infamous hiring processes in the history of the Valley. And they, you know, alienated 50, 60 top people, you know, just were rude to them over the course of a year. And they couldn't figure out how to, like, they were looking for somebody who could, like, get what Google was trying to do. And since the beginning of time, deep in the core of Google has been group flow. And they got this all over the place. Sergey and Larry were action adventure sport athletes. That tends to produce a lot of flow. That's one way. But they also were big Burning Man attendees. And that may sound strange, but one of the things that we've learned recently is that, and this was research done by Molly Crockett at Oxford, and you know they call Burning Man a transformational festival. And it's actually a literal definition. 75% of the people who attend Burning Man have a transformational experience. They come out the other side. They, they experience a very profound altered state, very similar to flow, right? A flow state. Um, and they come out different. So Larry and Sergey decided that the way they were going to decide that they wanted, they heard about Eric Schmidt, 
they, he had the background, but they also heard he had gone to Burning Man, and they, that was their hiring gauntlet. They said, well, come to Burning Man with us. We'll basically find out, can you, like, drop your ego, merge with the team, experience this group flow with us, or are you going to stand in the way of it and block it? You know, how flexible are you in this crazy environment? And he came and he passed, and, you know, the result was they got, you know, one of the best CEOs in, in the history of the tech industry. In the history of ecstasis research, there are cautionary tales as well. And uh, the most powerful uh, became, in a sense, a, a movie, The Day of the Dolphin. That was the story, that was the fictionalized story of John Lilly. Mm-hmm. So let's back it up a half a second so people can understand what we're talking about with, with, with ecstasis. So I said this story was bigger than flow. We had been researching flow and running around working with high-performing organizations, the SEALs, Google, others, Wall Street Wall Street shops like Morgan Stanley and things like that, we kept running into people who were not just tapping into flow and not interested in more flow. They were interested in a whole suite of state-changing technologies. We saw, you know, meditation, contemplative practices like yoga and qigong. We met whole teams at Fortune 100 companies that will go unnamed who were like whole teams of engineers were microdosing with psychedelics on a regular basis to improve performance. We saw famous founders of, you know, Fortune 100 companies showing up in Burning Man and experimenting with heroic doses of psychedelics, right, to, you know, innovate and drive creativity. We saw Wall Street traders who were zapping their brains with electrodes to alter their consciousness. And, you know, on and on and on, you know, the whole biohacking crowd stacking neurotropics till they're blue in the face to alter consciousness. And these are great stories. Let me tell you, great characters and great stories. Thank you. So everywhere we went, it was like somebody was trying to steal the Kaikian, right? And the other thing that had come out of research that we had done with flow is these states of consciousness, they sound really different, right? Like meditative states with for, you know, monks and meditators and flow states for artists and athletes and Wall Street traders zapping their brands with electrodes for technologically immediate. They sound very different psychedelics. But under the hood, the neurobiological to the knobs and levers in the brain, as I, as I mentioned in that opening passage we read, they're very much the same. So that's what one of the things we've learned through this better imitation technology, that there's this bandwidth of the altered state spectrum, right? Altered states go from like dreaming on one end to schizophrenia in the middle. In the middle is the ecstatic bandwidth. And this is flow states, meditative states, contemplative states, mystical states like trance states or speaking in tongues, psychedelic states. They're roughly neurobiologically, they're very, very similar. So throughout history, as I said, this is not a new story, right? People have long experimented with these states, and it always gets shut down. It always goes wrong. And there are a lot of different ways it goes wrong. John Lilly, who, you know, was one of the first kind of invented one of the first kind of brain probe. It's a pleasure probe, right? It's one of the first ecstatic, actual ecstatic technologies. It's a probe that goes right into the brain's pleasure center and it can light up this or that and steer somebody. And he went from there into experiments in isolation float tanks, which he developed to basically alter consciousness in the same way as pleasure probe did, but without the technology. And he started experimenting with LSD and then ketamine inside of these float tanks, and he took it farther and farther and farther and farther. And what's interesting about it, so one of the things we talk about there, not only are these states 
neurobiologically similar. They produce very similar experiences. The same thing happens to all of us in these states. We get an experience of selflessness, of timelessness, of kind of effortlessness, drive. We're like motivated by forces that feel bigger than ourselves. And these states are very information rich, right? Now, there's neurobiological reasons why all this happens. But what we were talking about with Lily is, and this is very common, one of one of there are you know there are hedonic dangers with these states, right? They're sticky. They can be addictive. Um, whether you're talking about flow states produced by action and adventure sports or you know drug states doesn't matter. But one of the reasons they're addictive is not a pleasure reason. It's because the access you get to the information, this heightened information processing, it's an infinite regress of information. Like you can go as deep as you want, and Lily kept going deeper and kept going deeper, and eventually, you know, his wife found him drowned in the, in a float tank. Like he had gotten up to adjust the water and he'd slipped and he was on ketamine and he fell back in the float tank and literally and she revived him. This was the best. With CPR techniques she had learned the day before while reading the National Enquirer. But Lily, what's interesting about his experience and the reason we'd say it's like ketamine is so safe and so non-addictive, right? They give it to pregnant women during childbirth. Like it's a very common tranquilizer um, for a lot of different reasons. So it's not the, like, pleasure of the drug. Like, it, it's got no real pleasure, but it gives you access to these deeper information fields, and that's what's so addictive. So Lily is, you know, he's a cautionary tale for a lot of different things, right? Brilliant scientist, brilliant cautionary tale. Um, our point is this guy, you know, may have gone the farthest anybody has gone and actually lived. Right, most people who go as far as John Lewis, they just they die. That's what happens, right? He actually managed to come back alive, so we could retell his story a little bit. Another story I really like is uh, Jason Silva's story, mm. and, and he's a really interesting fellow. And this takes us to something you were referring to before: the four characteristics of ecstatic experience: selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. Yeah. So um, we use. Uh, Jason Silva, who, if you're not familiar with him, he's the host of National Geographic Brain Games, Emmy Award-winning television host. He, he's a uh, video artist, Shots of Awe series, seen by millions and millions and millions of people. And he's now, uh, his new show is called Origins, just launched. Um, and uh, he, his experience, he, uh, he grew up in Venezuela and had a very difficult, dangerous childhood in a sense and, and developed PTSD as a result and used flow states to sort of cure himself of PTSD. And we talk about why that happens. And and he also talks about how, you know, Jason in, in, in his videos in the Shots of Awe talks about altered states and he can communicate with so many people. They know what he's talking about because we have the shared experience. And the, the experience is the selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness, information richness. And, and it, it's worth breaking down a little bit of the neuroscience here because um, it sounds like crazy talk. But what we've discovered is all these states have these experiences for a reason. So one of the things you see in altered states normally, you and I talking, you have a lot of activity in your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's right behind your forehead. This is higher cognitive functions, executive functions, sense of morality, sense of will, complex decision-making, long-term planning. In the states we're talking about, right, in these ecstatic states, that part of the brain gets really, really quiet. Now, it turns out that our sense of self is created in the prefrontal cortex. So when parts of it wink out, that self disappears. This is a big deal. Your inner critic, that nagging always on to feed his voice in your head, gets very, very quiet. So what we see, risk-taking goes up. 
creativity because you're no longer doubting all your good ideas goes up. We experience this liberation, this freedom. Time, same thing. It's calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. Parts of it wink out. We can't perform the calculation. Past, present, future merge into what's called the eternal present, the deep now, um, to use this term psychologists like. Again, very, you know, Jason had kind of a PTSD, heightened anxiety problems, a lot of fear. And the this timelessness is really good for that because most of our fears are either in the past, they're horrible things that happened before that we'd like to avoid happening again, and then in the future, right? Horrible things that we're trying to not have happen in the future. When those categories disappear, anxiety disappears. Stress hormones start flushing out of our system. So for Jason, who had really heightened fear based around you know, his child in Venezuela, this allowed him to reset the effortlessness that's because we get a whole bunch of pleasure-producing neurochemicals, right? These states are very addictive. They're, that's a bad word for it, but they're sort of the source code of intrinsic motivation. Once you know, we start having these experiences, we feel like we're being driven by a force that's greater than ourselves. And the richness, as I said, all the brain's information processing machinery gets amped up in these states. We take in more information per second. We can heighten pattern recognition, fighting links between that information, heighten lateral things. So those links lead to big breakthrough ideas. And that's the richness. It's a very information-rich state. That's what John Lilly found so dangerous and sticky. But in Jason's case, he went from, you know, a kid in Venezuela who could barely leave his house. He was a shut-in to riding these states and the heightened information and inspiration all the way, you know, into his current career as a, as a video artist and as a, as a host. Um, so, you know, properly fueled that you can go a long way. You know, um, when you were talking, it struck me about richness. One of the things is that I think our understanding of data processing has really helped us understand that on a technical, uh, I guess, sense sense level because we now understand that when we enter these periods where things are rich, it's just our brain is taking in things. It's like we go from, you know, being... Uh, VG, <laughs> VGA to to 4K HD. Exactly. That's exactly what happens, right? We get, you know, more data in the pipe. I mean, literally, so, and I could break it down neurochemically if you want to know the science, but really what happens is we take in more information per second, so data acquisition goes up. We pay more attention to that information, so salience goes up. We find faster links between that incoming information and older ideas. So pattern recognition goes up, and we find faster links between that incoming information and really far-flung, distant, forgotten memories, so lateral thinking goes up. This is essentially, and by the way, we get heightened retention on the back end, right? The quick shorthand for learning and memory is the more neurochemicals that show up during experience, better chance it has of going from short-term holding into long-term storage. Lots of neurochemicals show up in these experiences. Is sort of lock it into the brain. So in experience, for example, on uh, soldiers in flow run by the U.S. military, they found soldiers will learn 470% faster than normal in these states, right? The, so the fabled 10,000 hours to mastery, what the research shows is, is, is these experiences cut, that can cut that in half. You know, uh, I, I think that I, an essential part of this book, uh, understanding that you come to or I came to as a reader, I love this idea of wicked problems and wicked solutions. I think that... It's so key. It's the whole reason this matters. <laughs> yes. So you're right there. Great question. So I just said all of our brain's information processing systems get heightened. So what the research shows is that these kind of these ecstatic states that do this, 
they're not just great for kind of creative problem solving for simple creative problems like binary yes or no kinds of problems where they really excel are complicated multivariable so-called wicked problems right you can only wicked problems are things where there is no obvious solution traffic is a really simple example right you think the secret to freeway traffic is add more lanes to the freeway which is what we've done that's the obvious logical binary solution makes more sense no it turns out you add more lanes it lightens traffic for a second, and then people go, oh, new lanes, it's moving faster, and you end up with more people taking that route, and it makes traffic worse. This is a wicked problem where every solution actually can make the problem worse, right? <laughs> and what the research consistently shows is the only way to solve wicked problems is to be able to look, hold multiple perspectives at once, see around the problem, see all sides of the problem. That is what these states that we're talking about actually provide, right? They allow us, because the self turns off, right? We get beyond our normal perspective, beyond our normal worldview and limitations. So we're no longer, this is no longer the right way. We can just start seeing multiple ways. And that's and, part of the reason, the, the cool aspect of some of these drugs, where you no longer feel the edges of your body, you are you literally become one with all. So one of the things that happens in these states, a great point. Um, as I said, right, you get decreased activity in the prefrontal cortex. Sometimes in when – so all this is – let's just back up for half a second. Why you get this decreased energy, it's just an efficiency exchange. Brain's got a fixed energy budget. It's only got so much energy. And in these states, you need a hell of a lot of attention Prayed on the present tense in the present moment. So the brain says, okay, I'll give you extra attention, but I got to shut something down. I got to get that energy from somewhere. So it starts shutting down non critical structures. So in these states, and this was research done by Dr. Andy Newberg when he was at the University of Pennsylvania. He's no longer there. He's at Jefferson. But when he was there in 1997, 98, he figured out that in meditative states, for example, people talk about, Buddhists talk about, absolute unitary being, that feeling of oneness with everything. So he took Buddhists and he put them in an fMRI and said, what the hell's going on? And uh, he realized that there's a portion of the right temporal lobe, which is a part of the brain that helps us navigate through space, right? People who have a stroke or brain damage here, they don't quite know where their body ends. They don't know where a leg, they can't sit down on a chair because where does my leg end? Where does the chair begin? It's fuzzy. So as this part of the brain shuts down, we lose the ability to say, Myself ends here and the rest of the world starts there. That boundary actually disappears. Now, we all have this experience, tennis players, right? They will feel the ball through the strings, right? Like that sense is extending. Blind people can sense the sidewalk through the tips of their cane and really feel the sidewalk. That's our sense is extending. This is a flexible boundary. We don't think of the self as flexible, but it's very flexible. We have this experience all the time. Certain times, it just totally disappears. There's no difference between self and other, and the brain concludes has the experience of uh, what you know is unity, the perennial philosophy. I am one with everything. It shows up in every mystical tradition. It shows up everywhere on earth. And 1996, before Andy does this work, you walk into a doctor's office and you say, Doc, I, I, I think I'm one with everything, and you're locked up in a nut house. In 1997, you walk in and say, Doc, I'm one with everything. And they go, oh, yeah, your right parietal lobe must be turned off for some reason. Let's check this out, right? Like, it's really an interesting shift. And the, the more interesting thing, I think, is between 1997 and today, 1997 was the very first mystical experience, quote-unquote, we decoded. Using very similar techniques, fMRI, EEG, that sort of stuff, it's 20 years later, and we have 
decoded pretty much every mystical experience you can think of, trance states, speaking in tongues. We've compared prayer to chanting to meditation to different kinds of meditation, different kinds of chanting, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, sense presence, the feeling of a god or a deity in the room, visions, all of it. We've decoded all of it. Now, does it answer any of the bigger why questions? Not at all, right? We don't, is there a god? Is there not? Who the hell knows? But what we do know is that whatever else is true, these experiences are biologically mediated. And the crazier part, and I think this is important, and we, we make this point in Stealing Fire, it's worth making here, is it's not just that we've decoded them. We've now, you want to have an out-of-body experience? Great. we got a VR simulation now that can do it for you, right? So we have not just figured out where they come from. We can now twiddle the same knobs and levers in the brain and produce that experience. This is going to have a fairly large impact on things like religion, right? Mm -hmm. The points of religion have always been these mystical experiences, these sensations of like talking directly to God, and now they can be pharmacologically mediated, technologically mediated, right? I like the God helmet. The God helmet is exactly right. Michael Persinger, Laurentian University, figures out that if you direct a weak magnetic current to a portion of the right temporal lobe, you can get out-of-body experiences, sense presences, audio hallucinations, visual hallucinations. Some 2,000 people have worn the helmet. 80% of them have had some kind of anomalous experience. Um, and you know now it's a, a commercial technology. It's called the Shakti helmet. I think you can order it online. As a matter of fact, the guy who built it, I think he lives in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like so, and I mean, and there was the talk. I don't know if they're, I, like yeah, I don't know if they're going forward with this or not. But um, there was talk when I was interviewing Dr. Persinger of turning it into a video game or putting these experiences inside a virtual reality. I don't know where that is um, right now in development. But you know, you got to stop and think. These were the rarest experiences in history. These were foundational religious experiences that religions got built on, and now they're available to anybody you know, with Radio Shack technology, essentially. But Radio Shack is out of business, so Circuit City, they're out of business too. But somebody like that, right? This is the beginning of potentially of a huge revolution. And so I think you do some, have some fascinating stories in here. So I want you to talk a little bit about uh, one of the things that, of course, we have to know that's happening. We have all these great revolutions and stuff. Yeah, fMRI, whatever. Somewhere in there, whenever somebody invents a technology, there's somebody also simultaneously invents a misuse for that technology in some cases. So talk about our efforts to weaponize consciousness. What a great term. Scary. <laughs> Scary, but true. <laughs> well, so what we've seen you know, throughout history, uh, and, and definitely, you know, with the history of these kind of state-changing ecstatic technologies, is that, you know, nearly from the beginning, there has been a lot of government interest. I mean, I told you about John Lilly, right? We talked about mm. John Lilly. He invented this pleasure probe that you could insert it into the brain, and it would stimulate the pleasure center. And, you know, he trained monkeys with this, and they would literally masturbate for 16 hours straight, sleep for eight hours, and get up and masturbate again. Like, that's all they did. And so news of it, he was doing this under an NIH grant. He was at the University of Pennsylvania. And so news of it, he had to publish it, right? Um open it, and as soon as he did, every single three-letter agency you can imagine beat a door, beat a path to his door. They all wanted to be briefed on NSA, CIA, FBI, D, you know, just all of them. And uh, 
NSA didn't exist back then, but you get the picture. Um, and he said, whoa, 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 I don't, I don't want to do this. We're going to open source this. We're going to make sure this isn't classified. This is really dangerous. If it gets in the wrong hands, you could absolutely program a human or an animal to do exactly what you wanted and without even their knowledge. And he says, no, no, no. And he gives his presentation. And a couple months after the presentation, a guy from the Sandia Corporation calls him up and says, same thing. I'd like to come you know, see your technology. And he says, well, we're going to open source it. This can't be classified, blah, 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 trying to protect against it. And lets the guy come and film his research on dolphins. And two years later, he opens up Harper's Magazine. And there is a picture of the very guy who came to visit him standing next to a nuclear donkey. It is a donkey with a nuclear suitcase, a mini nuke on its back. It has a pleasure probe in its brain and it they can steer the donkey. It gets punished with pain if it goes in the wrong direction, rewarded with pleasure if it goes in the right. So they can now deliver a nuclear payload through a mountain range without even having to do it. The very first kind of ecstatic technology in the history of the world and the first people to kind of use it and develop it fully is Sandia, and they turn it into a weapon. And that's, by the way, why John Lilly went into float tanks. He said, I'm done with this. I'm going to go build something that's harder to weaponize. But what we see from like that point on to the present is, and some of this, it's, the reason it's hard to talk about is it's all the conspiracy stuff. We talk about MK Ultra. That was an attempt to weaponize psychedelics, right? And and it's, you know, it shows up in the X-Files and, you know, conspiracy websites. And But the truth of the matter is this pattern has gone on for the past 50 years. Every time the counterculture develops a state-changing technology, you know, the military tries to find ways to weaponize it. And it goes back and there's this back, we call it the spooks and kooks paradox. And you just go back and forth and back and forth. And the spooks abuse it in their way and the kooks, right, the hippies of the counterculture, they're abusing it different ways. Somebody's militarizing it. The kooks have, you know, hedonization. And, and there's a today there's a third problem, which I think is probably more insidious, which is you can commercialize it. If you put people, for example, in flow and expose them to a product in the same way that like trust and bonding, social bonding, right, you can really like bond people to products very quickly that way. And we saw it when Rise of Superman came out, the very first people to reach out to us. Book has been out a week and a half, two weeks. It's a book about action adventure sport athletes tapping into flow to do the impossible. But the military reads it, and we get called in to meet with spec, spec ops very quickly, and the marketers read it. And the next thing we know, we're presenting at the Advertising Research Foundation, which is every single advertising agency and major brand in the world wanting to hear about what's next, what's cutting edge, and they want to know, can we use flow to sell people stuff? And the answer is yes, and people have you know, started to figure this out. And we heard about, you know, kind of neural marketing, Martin Lindstrom back in the 90s and the early 2000s. And back then it was pretty wonky. It wasn't really, you know, what he claimed was going on wasn't exactly going on. The technology wasn't really there yet. But it's kind of there today. And this stuff is a lot more serious. And so the old subliminal advertising that we were, in a sense, an analog of the old subliminal advertising that we were once warned against, it might be uh, on its way in. So think about it this way. What we now know about uh, these ecstasis, this urge to alter our consciousness, is, and this is Ronald K. Siegel's work, or Oliver Sacks took part in this as well, but the urge to alter our consciousness is fundamental in most mammals, 
some birds, some insects, and humans. We see it in children, right? They will spin in circles or roll down hills or hyperventilate to alter their consciousness. With, I did all that stuff. Right. And you see it all the way in the mammalian chain. Elephants will drink from bog, fermented bog water. Baboons take iboga. It's a, a very powerful hallucinogen. Jaguars use ayahuasca. Birds will chew marijuana seeds. The list goes on and on and on. And the question was why, right? Like what the hell is going on? You get birds high on marijuana. They fly into panes of glass just like humans crash their cars, right? Like it's no different. It's not – it seems like this would be evolutionary, not beneficial. turns out – that, that heightened information, that heightened problem solving, because all animals get stuck in ruts, right? They all face wicked problems, and they have to come up with creative solutions. And these non-ordinary states unlock that. So it's a fundamental drive, right? So our point is, historically, access to these states has been really rare. But if you look at how salt sugar, fat, right? These are other fundamental drives. The drive for sustenance is a fundamental drive, and we equate sweet with sugar, lots of calories, right, from times of Same problem, right? And now we have a giant obesity epidemic, right? There are more people dying of obesity in the world today than they are of starvation. That's because we have reprogrammed a biological urge to make you want, you know, to eat a Krispy Kreme donut with, you know, a Whopper Jr. in between, right? Like we're built for it. The same thing is going on with these states of consciousness. Historically, they're really, really rare. Out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, deep meditative states, you know, all this, not everybody gets to have those experiences that often. Now, we can have them at the flick of a switch. We can have them nearly on demand. There's enormous benefit, but it's also, this is a fundamental evolutionary driver we're messing with, and you have to be careful. One way of being careful is, as you say, to um, calculate the Lilly equation. I really like the Lilly equation. So let's put it in context for a second first, right? Let's take – we I, I, these states are useful for performance. They're also – we talked about Jason with PTSD, PTSD after his childhood. So PTSD is a, sort of an extreme anxiety problem. And three recent res- experiments kind of – show that you can use non-ordinary states to treat this and I, and I will back into your question we'll get we're going we're coming back to the equation it just help it's helpful to understand this so in the and PTSD is, is a serious concern 10 million Americans or 25 million Americans so like 10% of the population has this at any one time very expensive extremely crippling destroys lives so back in the early thousands uh, Michael Mitherhofer a psychologist discovers that MDMA, the psychoactive inside of uh, ecstasy, right, um, can be uh, coupled with talk therapy, what they call psychedelic therapy, is extremely useful in treating PTSD. And they found that one to three sessions of MDMA therapy is enough to completely remove or significantly decrease symptoms of PTSD in victims of childbirth, abuse, sexual abuse, and soldiers returning from war in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's really cool. That's interesting. Then they redo the experiment swapping out surfing, which produces a lot of flow states, for the psychedelic. So it's surfing as a flow trigger produce and talk therapy. They get the same results in five weeks of surfing. Then last year, they redo the experiment, this time with meditation. Same results with four weeks of meditation. So these are four different techniques of ecstasy that produce roughly similar results. The, what is different today 
is you can choose. And being able to choose, you <laughs> want to be able to weigh different techniques against one another. These are fuzzy superconductors. So we came up with an equation, right? And it's basically evolved, you know, certain variables. How big is your risk tolerance, right? If your risk tolerance is really wild and high, then maybe, unless you want to get yourself into a government trial, you're willing to take an illegal drug to do this, right? If you have slightly less risk tolerance, okay, you don't really want to do that, but maybe you want to go surfing. Even less than that, you can go meditation, get you to the same place. The other variable is time. How quickly do you want to get there? If you need to be fixed by tomorrow, you might want to try the MDMA therapy, right? If you have more time, meditation, right? So there's a bunch of different variables. We can construct them into an equation. And for the first time, we have comparative techniques of ecstasy. We can literally take all these early experiences that, you know, you, the, the meditation, the contemplative states, the psychedelic states, the flow states, the on and on and on. And you can weigh one against the other. And, you know, it's still a little loose and subjective because you got to, like, make your own choices along the way in, you know, in how we do the calculation. But it's a lot firmer than we were before. And that leaves us with hedonic calendaring. I love that. I mean, just the sound of that phrase trips off the tongue. So, you know, when people start experimenting with these states, and it could be flow states, right? Like they could start, they could take up a new sport, horseback riding, which produces a lot of flow. Um, and it can be really addictive, right? And maybe you want to start, and, and people have a weird kind of reaction when things get addictive. Whatever the activity is, we tend to like go all in and then we, we're like, oh, crap, I got all consumed. That was bad. And then we have a guilt reaction. And we try to get it out of our life forever. Not going to ever do that again. And then a year later, oh, no, I broke that back down. I'm back at the bar and I'm horseback riding again. Or take your pick. I'm giving you random horseback riding examples. But horseback riding, right, we talk about this in the book, um, does produce injury or death in one out of 350 cases, right? So, like, there is, it's actually fairly risky. We were comparing it to ecstasy. Right, we need to declare a war against horseback riding immediately. Which is, which is what sort of happened in Britain, right? Like, <laughs> the, the, the head drugs are in Britain compared horseback riding, the danger of it, to the danger of MDMA. Uh -huh. MDMA produces an adverse effect one out of 10,000 cases. Horseback riding was one in 350. So, you know, he wrote an article and said, hey, the dangers of, you know— Equacy, equine <laughs> horseback riding, are, it's, it's, it's much more dangerous than ecstasy, despite all the hype. And, you know, basically got drummed out of his job as a result because you're not allowed to make those kind of comparisons um, in public these days. But uh, the the equation we give is, is one way to make those comparisons. But what we're trying to do with hedonic calendaring is to say, look, rather than, you know, having this really strong moral reaction that actually like isn't any good like there's a way to calendar these things and if something is is, is calling your name too much is a little too sticky you can kind of move it to another slot on the calendar do it less frequently there's built-in periods of of lent of you know abeyance of don't do anything now see how you know we the point is every time we've said altered states of consciousness can up level performance there's been a little bit of a revolution and there's been a clampdown because things have gotten way out of hand. Um, and what we're trying to say is, hey, there's a way, maybe, possibly, perhaps, that we could have a different ending this time. 
and it requires kind of less knee-jerk societal reactions and more responsibility, more individual responsibility. It's really funny because you would think people experimenting with altered states, this is associated with decadence, right? And what we're really saying is it may be associated with decadence, but if you're really going to deploy these things to get there, benefits, right, the huge boost in productivity and creativity and learning and motivation that we see um, in cooperation, collaboration, it requires a much deeper responsibility. It's an ascetic approach, I think. I don't know if it's an ascetic. I think of it as a middle path Mm -hmm. between the extremes, right? You have a left-hand path, (laughs) a right-hand path. This is the middle path. The new book by Stephen Kotler is Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists are Revolutionizing the Way We Live and Work. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Thanks for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.